five years, Thomas Salmonson was the chair of the Committee for Medicinal Products for Human Use, the CHMP of the European Medicines Agency, and was so at a time of unprecedented innovation, change, and challenges for the European healthcare system. He's currently the senior scientific advisor at the Swedish Medicinal Products Agency, and his background includes time as the regulatory head at SmithKline Beecham for their cardiovascular disease portfolio, bringing with him a wealth of industry and regulatory experience. Thomas, it's a pleasure. Thank you for sitting down today. Thank you very much. We're here in Vienna, beautiful Vienna and DIA. We had a lively discussion last night on an orphan drugs panel. That's true. That's true. We were just having a chat before we started about some of the discussion points from last evening. One of the things that came up was sort of new models. I think we both agree that unfortunately someone's got to take that risk. I totally um, agree with that, that someone needs to take that risk. And I'm I'm a firm believer of the model that we actually have. I think the commercial model that we have with the investments, etc., I'm a believer in that. And I also believe that the drug industry, as it is, is, is the best way of developing drugs. I don't believe in other models. I think that's been tried in some parts of the world, and I don't think it's successful. What perhaps is missing is sometimes that the government, the people that pays for drugs, are putting the money really where they want the development to happen. So incentivized by targeting and, and then promising reimbursement or at That's least coming true. to agreement. And, and this becomes most obvious in areas that are perhaps not working well today, where, where the current model is not working well. And you can, you can see it in the antibiotic space. You can yeah. see it perhaps in the pandemic space. Although I think in that case, we were able to solve it in, in a way that it worked. But the pandemic vaccines is another area where the current models it may not be working. You can see in some of the neglected diseases. And you see it in the orphan space to some extent. Sure. Now, you were chair of the CHMP during a time of both unprecedented innovation, but also incredible controversy, (laughs) a lot of pushback. Looking back over those five years, what do you think are still the main challenges that we have to deal with? Ooh, that's that's the real big question. But during this time, we've seen fantastic scientific development in many areas. And we've seen um, understanding of diseases in a way that when, when I started at CHMP was one disease, it's now several diseases. The understanding has given us targets to go after. And with the scientific developments, antibodies, gene therapy, cell therapy, we're now able to see drugs coming through that perhaps goes from a symptomatic situation with symptomatic care to disease modifying and we're able to cure diseases. And that's that's really fantastic. We may have been a bit optimistic if we say we the system when it comes to the how rapid the advanced therapies would deliver. Uh, yeah. The cat was set up quite early, but now we see them coming. So that's fantastic. But that's, of course, not a result of the regulatory system. That's the result of, of innovation, innovation, science, yeah. and, and drug companies, etc. So that's nothing I or the system can take credit for. What the system needs to take credit for, if it should, is, is how to deal with them. There, I think the European system has shown its strength. Uh, there's no way that any regulatory agency in Europe would have been able to handle this scientific development and drug development that we've seen on its own. So by working together, I think we've shown the strength of regulatory collaboration. And that's not easy. We're 28 member states currently, plus Norway and Iceland, 
big and small agencies, having them to work efficiently or reasonably efficiently together is challenge. And I think what's been driving me to to make that happen. When the regulation was passed to put the EMA together, there was a lot of controversy then. There's still a lot of pushback. The EMA has been a tremendous success. And I think people can look back at that objectively and say, yes. Why do you think there's still so much pushback about it? Well, is there a lot of pushback about it? (laughs) But but let's start with the fundamentals of the system. I think the starting point with the legislation You can't underestimate the importance of having a legislation that says there needs to be one decision in the end. Mm -hmm. There needs to be one decision and there is a way to get to that one decision. So if the national agencies can't get an agreement in the mutual recognition or decentralized, there is a way to come to one decision and that's going to CHMP. And that, of course, forces everyone to be very, very careful. clear on when they disagree or agree with what another member state is doing. So one decision, one labelling for prescribers and one CMPC and one package leaflet. That's one fundamental starting point. Secondly, I think the fact that in Europe we decided to recognise that the national agencies will have both a European role and a national National role. The scientific work will mainly be with the national agencies. That was very important to me. That's that's fundamental. Perhaps in the beginning, we pushed that a bit far, too far, by saying, okay, EMA is a uh, coordinating agency. They coordinate, but all the scientific, (laughs) glorious scientific work should be done (laughs) by the national agencies. I think we pushed that a bit far, and uh, there was... Perhaps, to be honest, a fear that EMA would be the big agency that takes over the role in Europe, etc. Become ubiquitous like an FDA, essentially. Yes, and the agencies, national agencies, and some individuals then handled that by keeping EMA at an arm's length. I'd like to come back to a little bit what's been driving me during my time as chair, but one thing has been to utilise fully the resources, the scientific resources also at the EMA, because EMA is, has a lot of competent people and very good people, and to utilize them in the scientific evaluation, in the consistency, in the communication has been very important for me, because in the end it's a matter of coming to robust decisions. But I think that setup, the basic setup has been very important for the success of Europe couple more things. Each member state has one vote. And that, that's a strength and a cha- in a way and a challenge because we have to be honest, not all agencies have the same capacity. Or technical expertise, etc. Te- et we have to be honest with that. There are bigger agencies with massive uh, resources that can provide their representative at the agency with a full picture of all the topics that we are going to talk about. And there are smaller agencies less resourced, I should say, where it's a one-man, one-woman show, more or less, when it comes to a committee representation. In the end, we all have one vote. Right. So the Germans um, agency, the B-Farm, has one vote, or the representative, and Luxembourg, the neighbor, has one vote. Yeah. Equal powers, in a way. For its chair, then, the importance is to make sure that when coming to a vote, when coming to that joint decision-making, we all know what we're going to do. And that's been a driver for me 
to make sure that in the decision or discussions that we have a focus on what is really the most important things understand the most important things take the vote when i think that the committee is informed and not go on longer because the, the agenda is always pushed in time of course. <laughs> of course yeah that's the balance get to a point where people are clear and comfortable with pushing the red or the green button. No, obviously those discussions are confidential and those of us on the outside world are not privy to what goes on. I mean, do you see the collegiality and the collaborative spirit? Is there generally unanimity in these decisions or sometimes are there enormous acrimonious splits? Yes. Yes. And I, I value that. Now, in the end, the role of the chair, the task of the chair is to come to as close to, to consensus as possible. But having said that, I, I believe that any decision to be taken can benefit from a good open discussion. Mm-hmm. Different views are good because even if they don't change in the end the outcome, the, the outcome is as proposed from the beginning, it forces you to really craft down the arguments for a certain position. In, in the committees like CHMP, it's been very important for me that everyone is, feels comfortable to bring forward a different position. And this is really difficult sometimes to make sure that that's a position, that's not the person. So once you, right. that discussion is done, you can go out and have a nice coffee together. You separate the issues here. And uh, I'm not sure if that makes, if you understand what oh, I'm no, saying. I t- but, I, but there's but a professional opinion that that's caring from an institutional perspective, exactly. but it's not an individual. And, I, and, I totally and, understand and, that. And, and an environment where, again, with an agenda that's very full, you're able to come with your view clear you don't have to hide it or anything i disagree with you Duane. i totally think you're totally wrong here that i've and, heard that many times yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then then you can put forward your argument and you can have a lively debate an open debate and then in the end we may all agree in the end people don't want to go divergent etc fine but an open debate is very important in the committee. If you suppress that, I think you're in danger. And the CHMP, though, is also, I think a lot of people forget, these are made up by member state representatives, so they're bringing with them the representation of their, their countries. But also, it allows for a lot of innovation. Uh, I look at uh, the Glybera case where Luca Pani put in the phased payment, basically a rental fee almost, yeah. which was brilliant. I mean, how much of those learnings then come back to the CHMP in the discussions? Now, I think you now touch about money and that's... Well, no, just, I'm, I'm just talking about innovation <laughs> and strategies. Innovation is, is, of course, important. And to some extent, that touches about our link to the Scientific Advice Working Party, which is a working party on the CHMP that has, over this time, as I started CHMP 1999, you know... <laughs> yeah, you were born, but you were in your shorts then. <laughs> well, no, maybe not. But My hair's pretty gray. <laughs> okay, okay. But, but it's a long time ago, so 18 years ago. We, we started with scientific advice in um, around 2000, 2001. And I remember that we then said, we have a capacity to deal with three advices. That's what we can give. And they will be in addition to all the guidelines that we produce. Over the years, maybe guidelines has become less valuable because we tend to write guidelines when we we have already set some regulatory decisions there where there's always some already some type of bars that we have already set through our decision making with scientific advice 
with this new development, new sciences, the need for that has increased massively. You know that we're doing today not three a month, we're doing 50, 60, 70 a month. Yeah, yeah. Which is. um, That's an incredible workload. It's an incredible workload and fortunate for CHMP. That's done primarily by the Scientific Advice Working Party, a large working party, a fantastic working party that's been chaired during the last couple of years by Rob Hemmings and there's a good team around him at the MA side as well with Spiros Van Vakas et al. So they're doing a great job. But it's important to bring that into CHMP. Right. So CHMP sees what's going on and Rob and Spiros have been bringing six, seven advices per meeting to CHMP to keep us on our toes a little <laughs> bit, um, challenging us, but also see this is coming. This is coming, and it can be anything from a highly technical thing to a more clinical trial development, like an estimate question. So it's quite good. So this is how we try to keep up. I think one important thing, um, and I think that's something to consider for any regulatory um, system that wants to be built up in other countries, is this trust. Right. How do you build trust? And there are a couple of aspects into this. One, of course, that in the centralized procedure, we always had two rapporteurs. You can say that's a waste. Why do you have two teams <laughs> doing the same thing? The whole point with collaborating is is saving resources. But let's remember where we're coming from, different agencies, different sides, different backgrounds. It creates such a healthy competition. Having the two repertoires. Yes. So they can compare notes and you can see what yes. they both interpreted from the result. And you can imagine, a Swede would hate to be in a situation where the Danish team finds something that the <laughs> Swedish didn't. You know, that, that's, It's like if, if we're playing football or handball with, with the Danes. And that's really good. Yeah. It, it's really good because it gives me as a chair the confidence that there is this second view looked at. It also gives the opportunity perhaps to team up a more experience with a slightly less experience right. and learn. Because how do you get the new, the less experienced agencies to grow? How do you less? get the less experienced agencies up to speed with the ones that have more material yes. resources and experience? Yes. Yeah, fine. I, I've heard about something called Brexit. I, 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 I don't know I, what it I've is. Read it somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. yeah. There's even a threat that MHRA is leaving the system. I've heard. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and you a possibility know, of uh, that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and MHRA has been a huge contributor to the system. Rumor is that the between Nice and the MHRA that they've contributed somewhere between twenty-five and a third of the evidence packages that have come through the CHMP. It depends a little bit how you look at it, but th- they've been involved in that number. But that's because we don't have two rapporteurs, etc. So, yes. but, but they're still it, done more than any other single agency. And as you mentioned, Rod Hemmings has been sort of the chief statistician and exactly. data verification individual yes. for those 60, 70 yes. <laughs> packages. He's, be, he's been a leader on, uh, as a co-opted member on CHMP. We do have the outstanding um, CHMP members. Previously, of course, we had Ian Hudson on the committee, etc. So we have had always good people from, from a major aid. They're leaving. How are we going to deal with that? Well, one way is to let the, the, the other agencies the others step, get, up, step yeah. up a bit and also work with multinational teams and that is combining experts from different uh, agencies. And of course, there's a learning curve here. 
And that can only come from the more experienced agencies. And this is, again, if you have two, you can have that. So I'd like to have you put on your Swedish hat now, not your CHMP hat. So you've made your decisions in CHMP. You feel good about what you've done regulatorily. Then you go back to the member state level. Do you often see a tug of war, a pull between the two? I don't see that. Mm -hmm. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) Um, Because you're touching on the broader picture here. what let, type let me, of system do we really want to have in Europe, linking let, national versus U, in, in Europe? Let me make this more tangible. Yeah, oh yeah. For example, EMA has been willing to look at um, one-arm clinical trials on yeah. some oncology drugs, and those have been approved. There's even been some discussions of virtual control groups over historical controls and databases where those have been greeted with some level of acceptance. Many HTAs, let's just be honest, would not accept that or, mm. and are not mm. accepting mm. that. How do we start squaring that circle between what is legitimate, innovation-based, statistical-based approaches that are accepted versus some of the pushback that we're having in the member states? How can we square that? Hmm. You, how many you, day, want put, you want um, to put your CHMP hat back on? Yeah, well, uh, no, but uh, I, I think um, it doesn't matter what happened. It, it's, it's, it's a... How many hours do we have for this conversation? i got plenty of tape, so we're good. That, 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 that's good. That's good. Um Let's look at the products that we do see coming through. You talked briefly about the orphan space. We see many products coming through the orphan space. And they're increasing as well. And they're increasing. And they, of course, have specific challenges because the patient numbers are... Small. Small. By definition. By definition. (laughs) And sometimes very, very small. Um, We also see science and I touched upon that earlier, now delivering drugs that, instead of symptomatic relief, may have a disease-modifying effect. They may provide cure, and we have all sorts of scientific developments and all that. This makes a challenge to the drug development. Strangely enough, it makes a challenge to drug development because the effect we see may take time or the full potential of a drug may take time to develop. IO checkpoint is a perfect example. But in some cases there, you can still look at the overall survival in some diseases, sure. etc. In some of these, you see an effect, but expect the full potential, the full benefit for a patient will be gained after several years. Right. So there would be more and more situations where, not because of this push for early excess, etc., but just by necessity, we would have to study drugs over a long time. There will also be, at the time of approval, we will have enough to say, yes, we have a positive benefit risk, but the full value, full clinical value of a drug, we will not know until we study it for a longer period. This is, of course, a challenge then when you hand it over to the HTAs and the the, the payers, etc. But we have to accept that this is a result to a large extent of actually very good scientific development and it's not going to go away. It's here. This is perhaps the biggest challenge that we have in Europe today, as I see it, if, if you come back to that question, is how we're going to build a system where we prepare not only regulators, not only HTA, not only payers, but also the healthcare system for a life cycle learning of the new product that comes along. When we start seeing things, 
early in development, early scientific advice, that we have a discussion with DHTA, with the payers, but also with the healthcare system, how are we going to follow these new products up? Because at the time of an application, we don't have the time, there's not enough time to set up a registry and implement that and make sure that we can follow all patients and learn as we use the product on the market. There's so much discussion on real-world data if we want to go that way in that discussion today, and there seems to be randomized control versus real-world data, and can we get access, etc. We need to move beyond that discussion and get down to the nitty-gritty. What questions are we going to have to address post-approval, and how do we do that? Then we can start looking at ways of getting the answers to those questions. This is the link. You talked about what happens at the national level. If we start having that conversation when the product is approved by CHMP, we're always going to be creating frustration because the HTA pays, they they feel, okay, we only have that. We're not going to get anything. That, to me, is the one big challenge. The other one, you raise single-arm trials. Yes, sir. I think that we've probably been a bit too generous when it comes to accepting single-arm trials mm-hmm. um, as regulators. Single-arm trials, by definition, is very often difficult to interpret. And you can only do it when you have an endpoint that you know this is not going to happen if patient gets an alternative treatment. Sure. And in quality people use tumor response as, as one of those things. That it's, There's data saying that it's unlikely that you get a tumor response if you're on an alternative treatment. Therefore, if you see a tumor response, it has to be because of a drug effect. I think that we are allowing perhaps single-arm trials to a little bit too much. I would have preferred to see rather a randomized controlled trial with small numbers and perhaps not with the same aim of a p-value of 0.05, rather than having single-arm trials and then going out and doing comparisons to contemporary or historical controls. Sure. And if we do single-arm trials, I think we can do better when it comes to creating the historical controls. So, to some extent, I can understand the frustration with single-arm trials among some stakeholders. But I also, as I said, I think we can do better when we design the single-arm trial. Part of the problem with past historical controls against a single-arm trial is that the data has not been very deep, nor has it been very robust. Can we solve some of these challenges in Europe by having... I mean, Europe should have, as with a single-payer system, single control. I mean, the Scandinavian countries traditionally had very good data. How can we make that better? In the end, it comes down to being able to generate robust conclusions and just a huge amount of data somewhere does not equate to robust outcomes into that. We've seen situations even in our rather robust registries in Sweden and and we have a lot of registries in Sweden and some good some not so good and that's also a learning point what's working not working. There's been some interesting conclusions drawn from the good registries that later when we've done a randomized registry study in the same setting, we get the opposite outcome. This is again coming back to what I said before. 
let's move the conversation about real-world data beyond huge databases and technical aspects. We need to have the methodological discussion around how we're going to generate robust data to come to conclusions from this uh, in the end. I'm very much in favour. I like registries. I think they can provide for some of these new technologies a good way of including patient, monitoring patient, benefit for patient, because in the end there needs to be a value for the individual patient and the individual prescriber. We haven't talked about that. We talked a lot about the the HTA payers, regulators' relationship, but in the end there's someone there that is using the drug and prescribing the drug and they have to be involved in this chain as well and they have to see a value in all this remember many clinicians are under huge time pressure at the hospitals etc today so there's a talk about registry fatigue in Sweden <laughs> because there's so much burdening we have to recognize that and for them to follow us they need to have a, an incentives in all this as well but if we can create that i believe that we can find a way of doing perhaps randomized studies within the registry and and the R in randomized controlled trial is very important and even if we go away from the controlled trial the R is important and randomized registry studies is perhaps a way forward. Director General Gottlieb of the FDA three days ago now gave a speech where he really talked about the need for more pragmatic approaches and randomization. Yes. And that that could radically cut costs. Do you think he's on the right track? Yes I do. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I listened to to one of your earlier podcasts um, with with the Godfather of re- <laughs> real world Mark data. Berger, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and you talked about, you talked about pragmatic trials, etc. You know, we can define pragmatic trials, etc. But I see that as the way forward. Relatively simple thing, but keeping the randomization. Right. We still have to. It still is a challenge. And, and with Mark, he said, in these uh, real-world data, you, you can address other questions than you do in a clinical trial. Maybe that is true. But what is the question we like to ask in, in this setting? To me, that's an interesting conversation. We can bring in the thoughts from the estimate, the E9 in the ICH, the ongoing work there. What's the question we like to, to address? Because Mark, he talked about in the real world, you do see changes to pathology, you see different treatments, you see etc. Which, of course, is um, what's called a treatment policy approach. Regardless of what happens, you look at the outcome for the patient. That can be interesting, perhaps a, a payer perspective sometimes. We have to be aware it's not measuring solely the effect of a drug. It is measuring something else. It's measuring the whole package. And if I, as a patient, it's interesting, what will this drug do if I'm able to tolerate it and I'm very good compliant staying <laughs> on it, what the benefits can I expect to derive then? This is not going to give us the answer. No. And if I was sitting in the industry side, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that industry is not driving this methodological discussion stronger today because you can see it's so easy to, in all this what happens, lose the effect of a very good drug for other reasons that you can't control. That's very interesting you should say that because we've been working with a couple of the national agencies because they were concerned or they expressed an interest in particularly the CAR-T therapies. 
And we did a very large database study, a pragmatic approach to looking at two treatment arms. And what we found was the response was not as good, but it was due to the fact that there's a a bias in the patients who are getting the new drug. Yes, of course. And it's only the sickest patients, the non-responders, who are getting the new therapeutic agent. And how are you going to handle that? You can have all sorts of propensity score or whatever you call it, (laughs) but in the end, you can't control for for the on. And I'm sure there are epidemiologists that think that they can handle all this. But again, the randomization, basic steps that we have in in a methodology is one way of handling it. But even if you have randomization, we have to have a clear view on how we look at the events that happens after randomization, also in these settings. And again, if we're going to have new drugs that require long time to follow up and fully understand their potential value, and that doesn't matter if we talk about Duchenne, SMA, or Alzheimer's, a big common disease, we would have to be finding ways of sorting out the different events that are happening and being sure what we want to address in the end. Sometimes when you hear discussions, it seems like, Okay, the real world data cannot address so many questions, but we're not going to have a situation, I hope, where we're just going to go in and look at the data and see what it tells us and let the data drive our conclusions. Because then I think we've lost the basic methodological approaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we finish, I'd just like to ask you one final question. Given your CHMP hat, given your member state hat, what would you like to see change in the next six months to a year if you could? If I had um, a clear answer to what can be done in six months, I think I would have done it a year ago. Maybe a year, (laughs) maybe two years. (laughs) Yeah, well, if we forget about the um, time span, I I think in Europe it would be very helpful if we had some political leadership that would be setting out the roles for different stakeholders. There's many stakeholders that wants to have a view on how a drug was used. When I started in this game, we had the regulators. We took a decision and we then made it accessible to prescribers and the prescribers were God and the patients accepted that. (laughs) And and it was automatically reimbursed. It was simple. Maybe not good, but it was simple. Uh, Today, there's so many stakeholders. All stakeholders are doing their own thing. Many of them are doing their own thing. Even when it comes to the thing that I talked about before, like the horizon scanning, preparedness for what's going to come. To me, as I see it, there's relatively little collaboration between the at the EU level we see what's coming relatively well through the EMA and scientific advice etc at the national level at the regional level back in Sweden we do have horizon scanning independently but there's no connection here in the end the regulators the HTA the healthcare we're all representing the society I think the political readership should push us a bit to say this is your role this is your role this is we don't redo things you you do this you do that you hand over things sounds like a, a bit communistic perhaps a, 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 but, a bit fascist perhaps but, yes. perhaps <laughs> but i think if we have a regulatory system that we believe and i certainly believe is robust when it comes to assessing available clinical trial utilize that fully in all the other steps but then you have to discuss how do you transfer the information and audit because regulators has gone from taking decisions as i said before to actually assessing things and handing it over to other stakeholders and i like 
the approach, but it's far too slow for me as an individual. But how much of that is caused as well by the flow of information now? There's so much diversified flow with the internet and social media. I mean, people can set up groups and share information focusing on HTA. I mean, this sort of straight line of communication top down i'm the regulator i talk to this person that existed before the internet <laughs> yes to some extent but i still think that it's inefficient and i think that's not good government to have a, an inefficient system sure. in a way you're touching upon my second point that i think we need to uh, change and that is involving patients and information to patients Again, an area that I'm not an expert on, and that's why it's so easy to have a view. But, <laughs> but, but it's the idea of a piece of paper that you unfold, and it's one meter long, and you can't read it because it's so small text. Yeah. Well, if you're old, you can't read it. I mean, it's that very modern. It's not tailored. It's difficult to update. This package inserts that we have, a package leaflet, is that the way to communicate to patients? Are patients happy with that information? No. No. So they go to the internet. They go to the internet. They find information there. And I don't know, maybe we've been a bit too scared for the commercial aspect, the marketing aspect, to allow a proper development when it comes to informing patients through the electronic media that we have available. This is coming, and this is coming to be a support for patients, and this is coming to be part of clinical trials, um, and that's another conversation we can have one day, how we link the medical device side and the, the, the medical drug oh, side. Oh, dear, yeah. oh, dear. Okay, I won't go there. <laughs> not today. But, not today, but, but it is an interesting one, and we see the trials where, th- where everything comes together, but I surprised you, I don't need the pregnancy information. I Shocking. don't. I, I mean, I could call you Zer if you like, uh, or G. Or. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but but I, I'm, 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 and I, there's information that I don't like, but I would need updated safety information. So involving patients and informing patients, I think, is something we should work on. There is, I'm quite convinced, a space to get more healthcare out of our products that we approve by using them in an even better way, better compliance, etc. And again, electronic tools are available to support patients. We're paying a lot of attention to new drugs, etc. But the use of drugs, that's perhaps an area that we could work on as well. Thomas, thank you very, very much for your time. It was very enjoyable. Thanks a lot.